Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front, a Band of Brothers podcast. This is episode number two, and we are covering Day of Days. My name is Tim, and joining me as always is Tom. How are you tonight, Tom? I'm reporting for duty. I'm on time and in the right uniform, so those are the two most important things. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, So we both just uh, recently got ourselves kind of refreshed on Day of Days, and and Day of Days was... uh, actually released back-to-back with uh, the first episode with Curahy in the original release of uh, Band of Brothers on, on HBO. And this episode, uh, writing credit, of course, kind of perpetually goes to Stephen Ambrose, uh, since this was based on his book. And the screenwriting uh, credit here goes to John Orloff, and this episode was directed by Richard Lon Crane. So, uh, Tom, walk us through this episode here. What, what, what happened? So I think the 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 title is pretty self-explanatory in a sense and in fact the la- in case there was any confusion as as the last episode ended those planes that they were on were on their way to Normandy. So this is it. This is the day of day the days that they're talking about is Normandy. So this is the kickoff of the allied invasion of Europe. And the way that they're going into Europe is the beaches of Normandy on that western coast. Easy Company, along with a bunch of other paratroopers, including from the famed 82nd Airborne Division, they're in a support role. So they are supporting that beachfront invasion by parachuting behind enemy lines. That's their entire purpose, is to hop out of those planes, not just to look cool, but to, to go uh, catch the enemy by surprise and, and really seize the advantage. So during this uh you know, plane ride in, these C-47s aren't exactly the quietest of uh, methods of getting into a place, but uh, the Germans quickly figure out what's happening. And so heavy anti-aircraft fire uh, starts to light up. It destroys, disables, and, and dissuades many aircraft. It, it's a, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but you get some pretty graphic scenes there of these aircraft that are unarmed and very lightly armored uh, that are full of paratroopers. These are men, and they're being fired on and, and ultimately, in some cases, destroyed. You've got pretty heavy losses of men and resources, and units, as they tend to do when sort of the shit hits the fan, uh, they become scattered really far from their objectives in, in some cases. Uh, so you go back to that old old uh, mantra, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and that's absolutely true in this invasion. So elements of Easy Company are still led by Lieutenant Winters. He's the ranking officer at this point, based on the shuffle we had. Uh, as Actually, he's not the ranking officer. I, I should stand corrected. He quickly becomes the ranking officer. But they end up gathering at a rally point, and they start to piece things together. They ultimately, as this episode winds on, end up getting tasked with taking out an emplacement of German 88s. So that's 88 millimeter artillery pieces. In reality, they turned out to be much bigger than that. They end up being German 105s. So 105 millimeter shells. These things are pumping out. And those are artillery pieces firing onto the beaches that troops are landing on. So it's a pretty important attack. Ultimately, their attack is successful. Hopefully I haven't spoiled anything about either the war itself or the episode for you. And Lieutenant Winters gains the trust of his men. I got to say, I mean, there's a lot of time spent in this episode. And this is a fairly short episode. It's under an hour. I think it's uh, clocked in at 49 minutes. 
there's a lot of time spent in this episode on the experience pre-jump in these planes. And you get the perspective of the paratroopers as they are in the plane, not really knowing much of what's going on, except that they're being fired at. And some of these planes are taking fire and they're kind of forging ahead. There's an awful lot of explosions around them. There's flak that's hitting the, 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 the outside of the planes. It's hitting the engines, that kind of stuff. And then once in a while, it jumps forward to the pilot's view. And, you know, you can only imagine the pilots flying through this and, it, and it's nighttime. So, you, you know, you're seeing a lot of the tracer fire from the flak. You're seeing a lot of the explosions. There's other planes that are getting hit that are exploding all around them. Yeah, they they have their destination that they're supposed to be getting to. But so many of these pilots, and rightfully so, kind of freaked out because they're just watching planes exploding all around them and they themselves are taking fire. So eventually they're, they're flipping that switch to green light these guys to jump. And it's kind of this whole, you know, the, the mentality of the pilot is, all right, I just want to get these guys out of here so I can turn around and go home. But also we're taking such heavy fire. If we get hit, everybody dies. So let's just get these guys the hell off the plane and hopefully minimize the loss of life. But like that whole perspective to me, just re-watching this and trying to get into the heads of both the paratroopers and the pilots, it was, I, this is like nail biting shit. This is like it, just insane. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. You, you bring up a, just a really good point. Cause I, to me, this episode is phenomenal. I, I, we were talking before we started recording. It's been the last time that I saw this episode before I rewatched was the first time that it was on. How I managed mm. to navigate what sixteen years and all the, the <laughs> sort of D Day anniversaries and and these marathons that the History Channel and other places would show without seeing this episode again is a feat in of it in and of itself. But what stood out to me was. This part, I mean, this is uh, for a number of reasons. I think you, what you're describing, uh, you hit on so many points because this season, or season, this scene, set of scenes is there uh, pre-jump, still aboard the C-47s, is this really, really complex onion that at its core sends home a a really visceral message of the scale the intensity and just the general fear that was pervasive. And and I don't say fear in a, in a bad sense uh, because, you know, I think anybody that said that they were aboard those planes, not a sca- not scared anybody currently that's, uh, you know, lived through a combat jump. Uh, if they tell you they weren't scared in, in some way, shape or form, uh, you know, they're, they're probably lying to you. Uh, oh yeah. But what stood out to me the most was that from the pilot's, to the paratroopers in the back. Not only are these all young guys. I mean, those. I think we like to to romanticize pilots, whether they be fighter pilots or, uh, you know, pilots of these C-47s, as these, you know, hardened, maybe a little bit older guys. I mean, you get the image of uh, Tom Cruise, you know, kind of seasoned <laughs> in the cockpit in, in Top Gun. These are. Maybe college graduates, so 21, 22. I mean, picture yourself, if, if you are that old, uh, at, at 21 or 22, 
being in the cockpit of a plane. I mean, you, you see one of the pilots who freaks out as his co-pilot gets hit by flak and gets killed. I mean, he's like, oh God, and he uh, hits the green light. That's a, maybe a college graduate and you're tasked as a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, with flying a bunch of souls who are totally dependent on you and cannot, you know, their lives depend on your skills uh, and and sort of your reaction to this situation you've never been in. That's a yep. really tremendous thing. And, and that, I don't know that that stood out to me the first time that I watched it as, you know, a high schooler when I first saw this. But it just, that really stamped in my brain. And then not to mention, you go back into the back of these planes and it's an airplane full of guys who, A, have never been in combat before. The only time they've they've mm-hmm. pulled the trigger on their rifle is in training. Yep. B, I, I, I don't know that there's a single combat veteran aboard any of these aircraft. And that's something that I, I want to touch on as we get further into talking about this episode. But that's really, really significant. Uh, and something yep. that you just do not see today. And you, you haven't seen maybe since the start of the Iraq war, this sort of total glut of combat experience. And, sure. uh, and, and finally, and, and maybe most importantly, nobody's ever done this before. I mean, this is yeah. <laughs> the first combat jump uh, that, that we're doing, or the first combat jump of this size anyhow. And you got a bunch of guys that have done five combat jumps in training uh, at airborne school in the comfort and relative safety of Northern Georgia far away mm-hmm. from any Nazi guns, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane for the first time in combat history. Yeah. And there's a reason, if you've heard the phrase Fortress Europe, that's what they called it as we invaded in 44. There's a reason that they called it Fortress Europe, and that's not just because Nazi Germany had a good army. It's because they they did have a very good military, and they had fortified it very, very thoroughly. If you've seen mm-hmm. any movie about D-Day or, or know anything about it, I mean, the Germans had really taken this World War I mentality uh, to bear, brought it to bear uh, in Germany, for all the adva- or in, in coastal France, for all the advanced things about the German army that you read about in terms of their innovations in tactics and whatnot, their approach to, to hunkering down in that area of France was really, really similar to, to uh, what armies had done, you know, twenty some odd years before in World War One. You got bunkers, oh, yeah. uh, heavy fixed positions all over the place, and mm-hmm. that's not a knock on Germany because it presented a very real danger for these guys. And you saw it as those tracers are coming up and just ripping these lightly armored aircraft apart. Um. But, it, you know, so, Tim, I, I did want to ask you, I mean, I, you know, what did you think about the portrayal? Did you get that sense that uh, that these guys were sort of at wit's end as they're about to hop out of this plane or planes? Yeah, you know, and it's a hell of a decision because obviously you're there. You have a job to do. This is what you've trained for. Your plane is being shot at. So the plane is a heck of a target, even though in... in all likelihood, the people on the ground can't see the planes or they're not seeing them very well or, or, or very much because it is dark and you have spread at cloud cover and that kind of stuff. Uh, so they're just, you know, 
putting up massive quantities of our of anti-aircraft fire up there. But still, essentially, you feel like your plane is a target. And then you know that at some point you need to jump out of this plane and you are going to fairly slowly drift down to the ground <laughs> in the middle of enemy territory. And as you are making that reasonably slow descent, the enemy is definitely going to see you because you have this big white freaking silk canopy over your head <laughs> and they're going to shoot at that. And that, like, this whole journey is just so damn unnerving. Uh, just absolutely insane. And then, you know, as, as they, they covered, a lot of these guys, when they made the jump, uh, the the prop wash, because the jump door is is uh, right behind the... Um, right behind the propeller the prop wash in fact was doing everything from snapping the uh, chin straps off their helmets to blowing the leg bags that were attached to them right off and these bags had all the extra equipment i mean we we talked about at the end of the last episode the sheer quantity of equipment that these guys were jumping with because they were jumping behind enemy lines they had to expect to operate for a certain number of days without any logistical support until they were actually able to make a path, uh, cut a path to the allied forces and, and start getting supplies and materials in. These guys had to sustain on whatever they had and whatever they could scrounge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're not jumping into an area with, it's not like today you, you deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan, you're coming to a base or if you lose your weapon in combat, you can just you know go pick up another one, or you've got dedicated and existing logistical support and whatnot. You you're going into the wild west. Yeah, and and we saw you know from this jump the 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 guys were scattered. They did not. So many of them did not hit their expected drop points. Uh, it is dark out, so they're trying to first get their bearings on where the hell am I in France. And I hear a sound and I see a person. Who the hell is it? Is it one of ours? Is it one of theirs? They had the uh, the, the, the crickets, the clickers, <laughs> so they could kind of signal each other. And of course, they, they had their passphrases of flash and thunder. So, you know, that kind of helped them pull together in the dark. But we saw when so many of these guys came down that not only were they missing equipment, but as you mentioned, they were missing weapons. Entirely. And well, hey, it's pretty shitty to drop behind enemy lines in the middle of a war zone and not have a weapon. Winters lands without anything. <laughs> With nothing, yeah. So I mean that's pretty damn unnerving. Yeah. I it's you just kind of think, hey, what the hell do you do? Unfortunately, he, you know, picked up uh with another guy, Hall, who was a radio operator who had no radio. <laughs> Because he lost his equipment on the way down, but fortunately, at least the guy had a weapon. Well, and that brings me to Which is a crazy. Yeah, and that brings me to a really good point because that that sort of connects the dots between that C forty seven first scene as they're getting ready to jump and as they sort of come together on the ground there at uh, at the night as they jump, and that's the the role that the officers play and keep in mind mm -hmm. I, I said it before but winters these guys that uh, we like to think of as these old souls or whatever just these grizzled veterans these are not combat veterans they're again young guys uh, 
not too much older than the folks that they're leading, but because by virtue of their rank and position, they've got a lot of responsibility resting on their shoulders. And, you know, it's, it's one thing, it's an interesting juxtaposition because I want you to think about, you know, the role of officers in, in the interaction with the enlisted folks in the last episode in that training environment. And you see some of, you, you saw some of the reliance that the, the enlisted soldiers placed on the officers as their training and whatnot, but it's categorically different than in this episode there, you know, that first episode, we got a lot of back and forth about discipline and this and that here. There are a couple particular scenes. You mentioned one of them, but that really send home that message. And if you think about that C-47 scene, there's a soldier that is very, I can't, can't remember his name. I don't know if he was named in the episode, but he's just exceptionally nervous as they're flying in. He's just, you know, his legs are bouncing. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, in freak out mode. And what do you see one of the lieutenants do? It's not winners, but another lieutenant comes up and very casually says, hey, I need you to help me with something. And they start to work on something. I guarantee you that lieutenant didn't need a damn bit of help and that task was totally fake. But what did it do? It it calmed that soldier down, gave him a focal point to to put his mind to uh, that, that wasn't on the task that was about to happen. And that's a that's a huge thing. Same with Winter. You see Winter's on the plane and just sort of how he operates. He's right up front. He's the the presence that and, and sort of the stillness that he wants his troops to focus on. And when he mm-hmm. gets on ground, that scene that you mentioned, he, he meets up with that radio operator and kind of <laughs> the radio operator's like, You don't have, even have a gun, sir? And he's like, You don't have a radio and but what does Winter say? He says, <laughs> you know, in my platoon, every man is a rifleman first. So you, you've mm-hmm. got that, and what that means, if it's not obvious, is that at the core of everything, I don't care what your special duty is, you know, machine gunner, mortarman, uh, you know, forward observer, medic, at the core, you have a rifle and you're trained on that rifle and you're effectively an infantryman. That's right. Before anything else. And that's that calming mentality where he's sending that, that young soldier a message that, I don't care. I don't want you to worry about anything else because you know how to use that rifle, and you know that alone will get you by. Um, you know, and I guess fortunately, Winters does arm himself with more than a knife. It's sort of like a video game where he, he like managed to set it yeah. on the highest <laughs> level of difficulty <laughs> unwittingly. <laughs> yeah, and then they, and then you loot from your enemies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he, you know, he he does end up picking up a German rifle, and then um, they do come across a little farmhouse where there were uh, a handful of paratroopers who got killed on their way down, and uh, they end up grabbing some weapons and and other uh, materials from those guys from their from their bodies. But I mean, that's that's a situation that you have to. That's what you got to do. Yeah, and that's a pretty stark because I don't think that everybody in that group had been with them. They have that ambush uh, overnight. They ambush that German, you know, horse patrol, and yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Winters gets his fancy bolt action German rifle, <laughs> <laughs> the Mauser. And uh, but I don't know that the, his entire group by morning had been involved in that assault. And so then this is some of those soldiers' first taste at what this war is going to be is yeah that's a yeah i i 
I don't know if this was intentional from the the show, but the there's this um, you know parallel that stood out to me. If you go back to the movie The Longest Day, and I don't remember all of that movie, but I do remember very distinctly as a kid watching it and that scene where the paratrooper is hanging, yeah, having been killed. Yes. Uh, that was all. That's like one of those iconic scenes in film. And I think this was a you know, obviously a, a realistic portrayal of what was going on, but also a you know an homage back to. Uh, that John Wayne movie, but you know these yep. soldiers are having to to not just take in that hey this is another American that's there other Americans that have gotten killed pretty brutally, but we got a job to do and this is you know business we can't really stop here to mourn the dead or take care of them we got to move on. And there was a, kind of a, a thing that was set up here that almost a bit of a running gag for a little while, but it it, it was kind of minorly adversarial was uh, Guarnier, who uh, also affectionately called Gonorrhea, <laughs> um, who just before the jump found out that his brother was killed in Monte Cassino. So he goes on this jump and he, I don't think he necessarily has an issue with, with Winters himself or Winters as a leader, but you know, Guarnier does, he's, he's just, I, I think he's just pissed off. He's grieving. He's, you know, now he's he's also new to a war zone, as, as we were talking about. And so he does end up kind of giving winners a hard time and talking to the talking trash about him to some of the guys saying, uh, you know, he's a Quaker. He don't drink. <laughs> he's not carrying a gun. You know, he can't tell me when I'm going to be killing Germans. You know, what's he going to do? Yell at him. <laughs> um, and. You know, so during that that uh, ambush that they set up there with the um, uh, the Germans who have the horses, which it looked like they were maybe hauling some artillery shells or something like that to the front, mm-hmm. Winters tells them, wait for my signal before you start to fire. And, and you know, they get close enough and Guarnier just stands up and starts shooting. And, uh, you know, they still had the same effect. They were still successful. They didn't lose any of their own men in this, but clearly Guarnier did not follow Winner's direction in this, and they had some words, and for a little while after that, Garner, you know, kind of bitched and complained about it. But it definitely, you know, definitely by the end of the episode, they, they, you know, kind of, it had some more pleasant words, and, and they did better. Yeah. Yeah, Guarner goes on his own, he and Winners sort of have this own, their own little mini journey throughout the this episode because yeah. it's clear he's he's very he's got a lot of pent-up emotions and you know they're manifesting themselves in different ways but uh you know i think he kind of pushes it with his mouth and then he really pushes it with bucking winner's order on that ambush and that's something you know if you're at all familiar with tactics the idea of a a hasty ambush like they're setting up it's a great tactic in you know if you execute it properly but the whole idea Mm -hmm. in an ambush and not complicated is to get the enemy into a kill box and if you're fire and the whole reason that the officer whoever is in charge of the ambush fires first is because that's the person that's responsible for monitoring when they're in it's nobody else's call but that one person uh, mm-hmm. So that you can have synchronization, and when Guanier fires, you know, fortunately there were no ill effects there. But you're putting everybody at risk by cowboying off like that, and that's why I, yeah. you know, very very quickly and publicly, uh, winners puts a stop to it. And 
I, I think it says something that Winters says what he says in front of everybody else. He doesn't pull him aside. I mean, Winters is a very calculating, smart man. Mm-hmm. It, he could have easily, hey, you know, Guanier, come come over here. Let me let me talk to you real quick. Don't pull your trigger early. You got to wait for me to fire. <laughs> no, he like he kind of like yeah. verbally slaps him. It's like Poe and Leia and you know in the Last Jedi. You know, he slaps exactly. him right in front of the other soldiers and and sort of lays down the law and I think that's important for Winner's character, but I think it also kind of that that jerking of his chain I, it, you know made a difference for him moving forward. And then by the end, they're cooking that god awful concoction in the back of the truck and <laughs> you know winners does two things he takes a swig of i think what do they have some kind of alcohol that he takes a yeah swig some of? kind of hooch i have no idea yeah it takes a little swig of the hooch and then he tells him looks right at him he's like i'm no quaker <laughs> yeah you know i i think the the public dressing down in that situation was real necessary because he needed to set a tone with these guys everyone's first combat experience Winters needed to get these guys back in the military mindset. We're not out here just doing shit willy-nilly. There's a chain of command you need to follow. And I think it was a real necessary thing. And, and, you know, Guarnier also needed to get his psyche back in place, too. Oh, yeah. And, And, you know, clearly this talking to really didn't quite do it yet, but... It started things in that motion, you know, get it, getting called out for what he did. Yeah. And I, I think there's something to be said, too. You know, I talked about the the front end of the ambush, but Guanier keeps firing. <laughs> All those soldiers are dead for the most part. And oh, he's yeah, still up yeah. there just spraying 45 rounds out of his Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> and I, there's something to it. You know, winners, there's this whole idea that the, the military is built on that it's a professional organization. Its profession mm-hmm. is something that's a little, I guess, macabre. But at the end of the day, they're there to do a job. They're not there to, to exact revenge. They're not there to uh, settle yep. a score. They're there to win the battle that's at hand, move to the next one, win that one, and mm-hmm. you know eventually contribute to achieving the larger mission. And winners gets that. But in that moment, you know, you if you get that mentality that spreads among the men... You know, it becomes a dangerous situation. Uh, so I, I think that was also a component of that dress down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, Guarnier, he, he was trying to blow off some steam, I think. And, you know, certainly, and, and it, I'm sure you can probably back this up, but given how high the stakes were leading into D-Day, there was no way they were going to pull Guarnier off the line. No. But in today's military... Hey, your brother died a couple days ago. You are not going on this raid. You know, you're going to pull someone back. You're going to do a mental health eval. You're going to let them grieve. You're going to, I mean, they're going to get their opportunity to do everything that they need to do to set them straight before they put them up. But there was no way in this situation that there was, I mean, he actually never even got official notice. No. The only way he knew is reading someone else's letter. Yeah, which is insane to think about. I mean, you know, and he doesn't even know where Monte Casino where his brother died was on the map yeah. uh, or, or who he died fighting, you know, none of that stuff. And you think about just the, the total change today, I, even if you were deployed forward in, in an active combat zone, it would be very different in terms of the notice that you would get. And you're right. Mm-hmm. I, it, necessity of the mission 
drives that sort of thing and they're there's no way they're going to pull him off the line. There, yeah. I, I will say there are people that are sitting in you know, Fort Leavenworth's uh, military confinement facility as we speak uh, who did bad things in Afghanistan or Iraq that were revenge motivated. I mean, these were people that killed, you know, in, in some cases civilians, but in other cases uh, they did stuff that was just improper to the enemy. And, sure, you know, to hear them talk about it, it, you know, a large component of it was, uh, hey, you know, I was upset because we had X, Y, or Z losses, or uh, you yep. know, the day prior, my best buddy, yeah, the day prior, exactly, my best buddy got killed, uh, blown up, whatever the case may be, and yeah, you know, there they are. It's just a very, very different world that they're living in, and that that brings me to, I think, a pretty good segue, which is Lieutenant Spears. We see him more yeah. later on. He's sort of woven in through this this series, but this is where his infamy starts in this episode. Um, we, I, I guess, the lead off before you ever see Spears in action. He has a couple uh, sort of very weird scenes in this episode, but before you see him, you see a group of German soldiers that are captured and just kind of hanging out by the roadside easy company is Very coming casually in. yeah you know they're just hanging out like shooting the shit right and yeah <laughs> a couple soldiers guarding them easy and sort of their merry band of 82nd and other soldiers that have dropped in are walking into what's a uh a, you know hasty headquarters that's been set up for the battalion in this little town so these you see the soldiers the germans that are imprisoned sort of outside the town and you know it's kind of a weird scene uh weird in the sense that if, if you kind of step back and think about it but malarkey actually meets a german soldier that is from his same town in oregon mm-hmm. and sits down and has a talk with him it's just one of those talks you would have i mean if you've ever been to a comic convention or uh really <laughs> yeah. it really anything you start to talk to somebody and you realize it's one of those small world type talks where you're like hey you know, you're from Oregon too. Okay, what high school did you go to? What you know, they're they're kind of narrowing it down, and they turn out it's honestly surprising that the two never uh, had actually met sure. prior to the war. And so the German soldier, he's like, "Why are you here in this German uniform?" He's like, "Well, you know, mom and dad uh, answered the call to to come back and defend the fatherland at the the outset of the war." So he comes <clears throat> and joins the Third Reich. And suits up for the Germans, and there he finds himself captured. But to Malarkey, I mean, this is one of those humanizing moments that is just a, a real it can sometimes happen, where the enemy goes from being this sort of faceless boogeyman type creature to somebody with that, that's very real. And then Lieutenant Spears comes into the fold. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you want to talk about that part. Well, yeah, you know, Malarkey gets told, hey, you know, you got to get your ass moving. You can't, you know, it's not social hour. So he leaves his his newfound friend and, uh, you know, heads over toward the toward their muster area, toward their, their headquarters. And while he's headed that way, Spears is headed over toward these prisoners and comes over and Starts handing out cigarettes and lights them up. That, that's never a good sign. I feel like in any war situation, <laughs> if I don't care what side you're on, but if you start getting handed a cigarette, 
don't <laughs> like take say it. a hail don't Mary take or it something. shit's gonna happen <laughs> and then the camera goes back over to malarkey who now then suddenly from that area hears a whole bunch of gunfire and and then spears just kind of shortly thereafter spears is then seen walking back through their headquarters you know we're led to think that Spears just yeah handed out cigarettes and then said all right you're you're all done we're gonna kill y'all we but we don't know what happens and the interesting thing is that this this whole scene builds as a mystery for many episodes mm-hmm. for many episodes the guys keep talking about it and it becomes this tale that gets grander than whatever could have possibly happened. And it really culminated, and I, I will say, first of all, of all the soldiers to have been over there and witnessed this, the fact that it's malarkey, like, you know, private bullshit himself. To, oh, yeah, to, yeah. Um, to quote his earlier nickname, yeah, that that's just the perfect <laughs> setup. I don't, I don't know if that, that's how it really transpired, if this is like a true moment, but it culminates, and I don't want to steal thunder from a later episode, but at the Battle of the Bulge, Spears makes sort of his culminating appearance when he makes that uh, crazy-ass assault down on the German mm-hmm. position, just <laughs> like yep. running. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny because that sort of thing happens. I mean, it happens about real-life officers. I mean, you, you look yeah. at anybody from the legendary Chesty Puller to um, Audie Murphy, the, the famous U.S. Army soldier that uh, mm-hmm. was the most still may be the most decorated U.S. soldier in history, all the way to James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. This is a guy whose legend, which may or may not be 100% true, but it it permeates who he is. You can't talk about some of these folks without all these stories, true or not, mixing in. And this is just sort of the the very first chapter of uh, Spears. And it's funny because his that aura about him builds at least just a little bit later in the episode. So as Easy Company is, uh, I guess, wrapping up its its attack on this fixed position, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. But Spear shows up, right? And I, you want yeah. to take that part too? Yeah, you know, Spear shows up and he's like, hey, can we take the last gun? And he just <laughs> runs. He's like locking and loading around into his Thompson. This man just runs with, like, no abandon whatsoever. And there's just bullets and grenades and all sorts of shit flying all over the place. And he just runs right in. And, I mean, he takes it. The man is successful. He takes it. And, and, and I mean, in, like, seconds. And then turns around and, and you know, waves over at Winters like, hey, <laughs> what, what, what the hell are you guys waiting for? We're, we're done. They got, got ice it. cream we're over done. here. <laughs> <laughs> They're not so, eating it anymore. Spears is so interesting because, I mean, as we go through the series, the man is kind of like a ghost. Like, you don't see him regularly. He just kind of appears once in a while. He does a thing, and then he's out. And it's hard to get a real fix on his personality and his attitude. Because, like, from this interaction with the Germans, like, you think, okay, he's, well, he's handing him cigarettes. Okay, so, you know, friendly guy, but still very stoic and... Oh shit! He just killed all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this guy's just like this bitter, 
badass. I mean, he definitely violated reg. I mean, you're not supposed to be shooting POWs. To then what we see later on to like, wow, this guy's like America's last action hero. <laughs> you know, he's just screw the trenches. We're just going to run straight a- across open field and we're just going to take this position and kill it. Ev- and he does it. Yeah. Completely unscathed. It's it's like amazing. And this is after winners is like meticulously going from, you know, through the trenches from point to point. And and no, this dude just just runs. Uh absolutely amazing. But I I kind of I, I just want to wrap up this piece. A few minutes ago you mentioned humanity, and that is the word I think that really envelops this particular I what I guess would be like the second act of this episode so well, because it, like you mentioned, it, it humanizes the Germans. Um, they, they are not the Nazis. They are not the Germans. They, they are people. And so you see this happen, not only for malarkey, um, but the audience is obviously along for that ride. And you get to see that these soldiers are not, you know, they're, they're not the, the, the hardcore, swastika flag waving SS. I, these are yeah. people from all walks of life. And yeah, some of them were Americans um, that, that went back to, you know, out of an initial call of, of patriotism to do something for their home country or their parents' home country and got pulled into this horrible, hideous thing. Yeah, And, and then we see the other side of it with these POWs getting killed, whatever that mystery shook out to actually be, which is also a horrible thing that should never have happened. And that's the first time that we talk about the treatment of POWs in the series. It's it's the first time that we see it. And we're, you and I are going to talk about it a lot more because it does come up a couple more times. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of morality in that and you have to balance emotion versus that morality versus necessity. And, and, and it's this big mess of stuff. So, but that's, that's definitely one of the human points of it. I mean, this, this is no longer an enemy that's on the other side of a field that we can't see their faces. This is an enemy that's right in front of us. They were unarmed and something happened. Yeah. When, by way of background, I, I'm not going to turn this into a history lesson, but for those who may be unfamiliar, the the German army was not a Nazi creation, right? I mean, that may seem obvious, but there was a German army for a long time, and it pre-existed <laughs> Hitler, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the the army was not made up of a bunch of goose-stepping, uh, death's head-wearing, or SS wearing uh, folks that that just bled the the Nazi creed, right? This yep. was a professional army, one of the most professional in the world. Um obviously had a little bit of infamy based on what Germany did in, in World War 1, but uh this was a professional army with professional commanders that became an arm of the Nazi state. And you know, you, you hear stories like Valkyrie, which is a book based on a true story turned into uh, a movie a with movie. Tom Cruise stories like that where you you see that the the two legs are not always walking in in lockstep the german no. army and or really the the german military uh mm-hmm. the the uh the Weimarked army and then the nazi party 
And, uh, you know, I think this, that scene with Malarkey and the POWs really sends that home. At, at the end of the day, the bulk of Germany's forces uh, were not fanatical folks that are out looking for the Holy Grail and you know, like doing all manner of bad things. It's a professional army that's tasked with, you know, a, a mission set and they're there to achieve it just like we are. Mm-hmm. And that cuts to the core of what Winners was chastising Guanir for, uh, you know, what we are and are not here in Europe to do. And it, it cuts to the core of the morality and whatnot behind the, the treatment of POWs because, you know, quite frankly, I won't turn this into like a legal podcast, I promise. I'll like send everybody <laughs> that's listening straight into a coma. But there are a lot of a lot of really serious rules when it comes to the treatment of POWs. In fact, I, I would posit outside of the rules surrounding the protection of civilians in combat, uh, the protection of POWs is one of the most serious aspects of the the law of war and there's good reason for that one you know you don't want just total and complete chaos where everybody's getting executed and it's just a hopeless situation when you uh, you get captured but also we had a lot of pow's that were captured in world war ii ourselves it's not like today mm-hmm. where you've got you know one z or two z and it's this huge news event when a soldier goes missing or gets captured um, this was very commonplace, and so the U.S. and its allies had a vested interest in maintaining the the s- safety and security of its POWs, so that when the war did end, that could be part of the terms, getting these folks back safely. And mm-hmm. part of that calculus is that if you're in the business of executing and giving no quarter to the enemy's uh, POWs, why in the world are they going to give quarter to yours? And at right. the end of the day, there's this quote that that always stands out to me that the, the hard right is better than the easier wrong uh no matter what you may think that the enemy is going to do to your prisoners that does not justify or excuse mistreating or certainly executing their prisoners or, or breaking rules yourself right and you know I, I think you see a little bit of that here and i i love that this series kind of at least tangentially tackles that issue is as you move on uh because it it was a huge part of the entire war and certainly something that they come across in a a repeated occasions um yeah so yeah so that i think the last sort of huge part of this episode was the attack on the the german artillery position yeah and and this is uh you know so this is a good setup here this is the this is the the basically the third scene of this episode uh they pulled this headquarters together and now they're gathering their intel and figuring out what their tasks are, are going to be they know there's a german artillery position not at all very far actually from where they are uh and in fact every time those guns go off they can hear them loud and clear right where they are <laughs> so they send easy company uh under winner's command because their lieutenant we know their lieutenant didn't even make it off the aircraft. Uh, their their commanding lieutenant. At this point, he's still missing in action. Uh, as as far as the the characters themselves are, are concerned, so so Winters is uh, given command of Easy Company mm-hmm. and briefed on this task. And so then Winters kind of devises his own strategy for this and gets the men sent out there and and. Uh, 
you know, you get a good feeling for a lot of these hedgerows, which are kind of infamous in this French countryside, you know, the hedgerows divided up all the different fields and lands that everyone had. And they were just this kind of, depending on where you were coming from or what you were doing, they were either a a great help because you could hide in them and and observe, or they were a big pain in the ass because you could get ambushed uh, by way of them. And, uh, so as winners had easy company deployed in here, they were able to essentially take up positions uh, around this area and make their attack. And essentially the, the big concept here is to have a multi-position attack, getting some troops as quick as possible into the established trenches so they're facing the enemy within the trenches and also attacking them from without. And, you know, you had someone climbing up into a tree and essentially working as a sniper. We were lobbing grenades into this. Um, we had uh, uh, heavy machine gun fire, all sorts of things as, as they were able to converge on this. And, and as they were able to take each gun emplacement, throwing some TNT or, uh, some other improvised explosives as they uh, seem to run out of TNT uh, into the barrels of these guns, blowing them up, rendering them unusable. So we, we didn't get through this completely unscathed. Um, Hall, who who came from uh, what I think it was Alpha Company, right? He was, when he, was he Colonel Sink's driver that or is that that's Lorraine? Yeah, Hall. That, that was Lorraine. Hall's yeah, Hall the first had joined guy up. That he hooked up with. Yeah. And so, so Hall joined up with him. Hall, unfortunately, toward the end of this raid, ended up getting shot. He basically rounded a corner uh, of a trench and um, and took some fire and, and didn't make it. Popeye, one of the guys uh, who was in Easy Company, and uh, we, we do see Popeye come back in a few episodes. He ended up taking a shot right in the ass. Uh, and, and, they call so that a million-dollar wound. Oh yeah, you know, and that gave a little bit of comic relief to this whole situation because he all he kept on doing was saying, "I'm sorry, sir. I'm better than this. I can't believe I got shot in the ass, sir. I'm so sorry." Like every once in a while, you just kind of hear in the background that Popeye is is lamenting over getting shot in the ass. Your weekend uh, which pass I have is to revoked. Imagine hurts like hell, but yeah. What's that? I said your his weekend pass is revoked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then on so two occasions, uh, one from a, I think first from a uh, German grenade that gets lobbed into the trench, and then second from a grenade that uh, that Buck actually end up fumbles, uh, <laughs> ends up fumbling. Uh, Joe Toy almost gets blown up twice by grenades. Yeah, he's like a cat sitting there. He's got seven lives left. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that's, six that's... if you count surviving the jump itself. That's a guy who you don't want to stand next to. Uh, <laughs> or maybe I, you do. I don't know. <laughs> or, yeah, or maybe you do, whichever way you want to take it. But bad shit happens around this guy. And, and yeah, for, for grenades to go off that close to you, uh, first of all, the guy you know probably can't hear for two days. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's just a hell of a thing. Just his reaction that the actor played that so perfectly <laughs> just like sick and done with it like will you please stop pulling pins near me yeah <laughs> you can only imagine buck too as he fumbles this grenade i mean like literally the worst thing to drop oh, yeah. in a combat yeah. zone <laughs> oh absolutely 
So, so yeah. what, um, what, what kind of light can you shed on this, um, on this, this fixed position rate here? Yeah. So I, I wanted to touch on one thing that I guess you could have a segment every episode on this sort of thing, but like the vocabulary of the military, right? Mm-hmm. The military has its own language. It's all English, right? But it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of somehow kind of, yeah, like very tenuous <laughs> connection there, but there really are shorthand and terms that get thrown out very casually, even in the episode. I mean, you can tell the kind of help that they had with military advisors and the work that the actors did in, in really laying this stuff down because these, mm-hmm. some of these words and terms are not things that just are A, are in natural use or B, just roll off the tongue. Um, you know, stuff like, uh, buckets being helmet, you know, that's the, the slang term for your helmet. Uh, mm-hmm. Potato masher gets mentioned at one point. That's the German uh, stick handle grenade that they yep. end up using in place of TNT to, uh, to blow up some of the artillery pieces. On that note, spiking a gun, right? That's rendering a gun disabled. So you're actually blowing out the, the barrel portion with some kind of explosive, which is how they render those things inoperable. Uh, so that if you do fire, if you are dumb enough to fire an artillery round back back out of that thing, it's going to explode right in the tube there and kill everybody <laughs> yeah. at the position. You also see winters, and this is something that confounded me the first time I watched it because winters just like it's like hearing somebody talk Latin when he gives orders to to his troops when he's actually verbalizing it, not just giving uh, hand and arm signals. Because at, at the first time I watched this, I'm a high schooler. I've got no military experience. And in this scene alone, he's talking about in, you know enveloping and enfilading fire. And I couldn't spell those terms, much less tell you what they meant <laughs> or anything. But I, he's talking about real stuff. And, and they directly correlate to how the assault plays out uh, on the screen. I, I wanted to share a little bit of light. I, I find that... This whole area just like really fascinating because if you really like, I encourage listeners if you if you don't speak military and you hear a term that one of the soldiers throws out a slang or something like that, jot it down and then Google it or or, yeah. or drop into to random chatter and try to play stump the chump. You can try and like send a, a term my way. I promise I won't cheat and look it up, but um, I find it very fun to to kind of think through these things and you know as a layman to look this stuff up because it can really enhance the experience as you're watching the show but specifically with the tactics of of how this goes you see at the end of the episode there's some text that goes up that this event this attack is still taught at the military united states military academy at west point it's a a textbook attack on a fixed position and they demonstrate and winners talks about as he's giving his orders and hastily plan this out two of the, the primary concepts behind this one is enveloping. So that's generally a, a tactic where you're uh, destroying an enemy force by attacking them from multiple f- points. So it causes mm-hmm. confusion and you're not attacking head on what you don't see them do is make some frontal charge civil war style this is not 
you know, Pickett's charge at Gettysburg where uh, the 101st is running across that field straight on. You see as, as this thing starts up, Easy Company is firing from multiple points. And in fact, you see the textbook confusion that envelopment is meant to cause because uh, what happens to the, the German machine gunners, Tim, at one point? I, I don't know if you recall. Oh well, they're they're uh, uh, concentrating their fire on one spot, where and then they're being taken out by someone else that they're not even they didn't even know was there. Yeah, and then they start to direction. fire on their own men. <laughs> they're oh, so yes, confused. Yes, yeah, and then they start firing on their own men later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, th- there's a lot of danger that goes into attacking something. It, the artillery pieces are one thing, but these are like heavily entrenched Germans. So you've got trenches that are well rigged, uh, hall in fact sandbags. The, yeah, you got sandbags. You know, this is a, a a fixed fighting position, and you've also got, I guess you could call it booby traps, because I think Hall gets blown up by a uh, a trip wire of some type uh, as he's going through. I don't think he gets shot. I, I think he's oh okay. I think he's blown up as he's running through. Gotcha. But you also have fixed machine gun points, and uh, you know, Star Wars fans out there know the MG-42 machine gun all too well. That's the, the long weapon that sand troopers carry and some stormtroopers carry. Uh, but Different in any ammo, event, though, I think. What's that? Different ammo, I think, though. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know, you, laser packs never run out. But those... Yeah. The MG-42 was probably one of the most feared weapons in the German arsenal. That thing could just vomit bullets. Mm-hmm. And... I don't even know that the the, wep- the 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 42s that they had in the show were firing quite at the same rate that a normal MG42 fires at. But they're just devastating weapons. And so they've got a couple of these, and they end up causing enough confusion <laughs> to have the MG one of the MG42 positions firing onto one of the guns. So they really executed that well. The other is enfilading fire, and that's enfilade with an E. It's enfilade is not a thing. But enfilading <laughs> is effectively, I guess the simplest way to put it, is it's maximizing your effectiveness by firing along a specific point. So if you can fire along the enemy's longest axis, so if, if you think about the trenches, enfilading fire is being able to put fire down that trench as mm-hmm. opposed to front on or from the rear. So that's the that the longest axis of that trench is straight across. Uh, that's enfilading fire. So when you combine these two, you get um, you know an envelopment that uses enfilading fire. You really negate the tactical effectiveness of that trench setup. Uh, so you take away the the natural advantage that comes out of sitting in a trench with only your head popping out and your rifle. And very quickly, which is you see pretty the, brilliant, and and it also yeah. minimizes the amount of fire that you're taking. Exactly, because you're not hitting this at its broadest point; you're hitting it at its narrowest point. That's exactly so right. You're able to focus your fire, and the enemy is is basically screwed. They're they're not set up to really defend an attack like that. Yeah. And you you make a really really fantastic point there because think about think about how the Germans are firing back. If Easy Company comes out of the woods straight on, every man can fi- every German soldier can fire without hitting their fellow Germans and and just take out and, and level Easy Company. If you're coming at them and firing on them from the side, 
from that longest axis. Maybe that first soldier, maybe the first two soldiers can get a clear line of sight, but all of a sudden, those the rest of the Germans that are down the trench start having a crowded field of fire, and they can't safely fire without you know putting their their other soldiers at risk. Also, that the, the those fixed positions are probably pointing in a particular direction and it takes time sure really valuable time to to readjust those machine guns yeah and you know so anyhow it really for a hasty assault like that you know the winners is not sitting back at headquarters mapping this out for a few days this is something that <laughs> he put together on the fly um this is really brilliant i i believe he got a silver star if I'm remembering the uh, Distinguished Service Cross, Distinguished Service Cross. So yeah, uh, very high up there, higher than a. a uh, I'm trying to think of my order of precedence for medals. I believe it's higher than a Bronze Star. Uh, yeah, but a bunch of the uh, they they kind of put in text at the end of the episode that uh, a, a number of guys out of Easy were awarded bronze and silver stars, and then Winters got the Distinguished Service Cross for this. Uh, for his leadership and, and obviously his strategy mm-hmm. in pulling this off. And also when he did this, he also got in, there was a little uh, a radio operator shack or you know commander shack with the radio. And yes. winners got in there and also pulled the map out of there too. So, you know, early intel uh, on the enemy and this map apparently had uh, a number of uh, gun emplacements located on it. So we, we did have a brief appearance of um, uh, Lieutenant Nixon mm-hmm. toward the very end of this episode, and, and he's he's the intel guy. And so Nixon uh, uh, did end up telling Winters, hey, if this thing was good, I sent this thing up the line. This is going to save lives. This is going to help the entire effort in this area. Oh, yeah. It was, it, th- it was a big deal. Yeah, it had every German artillery position in the area on it. And I just love for you touched on this the last episode. This, if you pay attention, Nixon never really sees combat, and yeah. Nixon just rolls up. He's not patrolling in. He jumped in just like the rest of him, rest of everybody else. Winners, his buddy, the first person that he finds is a radio operator without a radio who's scared shitless. Nixon somehow finds a Sherman tank column and comes <laughs> riding in, just yep. like kicked back on the front of this tank. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yep. you humped it here? Okay, well then, yeah, that's a shame for you. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I thought that was a funny start to, to hit. And that's one thing. We did this last episode where we talked about sort of the funniest moments or what, whatever you found funny. And this is something that I, I personally, I want to do every single episode because I think the show does such a great job of adding levity to oh, each episode. Does. And, you know, if you think about it, this show, this is a, like of all the episodes in this series, this is a really heavy episode. I mean, you're, you're jumping into Normandy, starting the invasion of Europe, uh, you know, lots of craziness is going on, and they still work in some funny stuff. I, to to you, what's your what's your favorite funny scene? Uh, I, I gotta say, you know, mine are probably the the two that are related there that we mentioned a few minutes ago, um, related to this uh, this attack on the the artillery position, and that's Popeye getting shot in the ass and just like constantly complaining and apologizing for it. Um, and, and, and juxtaposed to that is, is Joe toy almost getting blown up two times by grenades. Lucky bastard. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I I think for me it's Malarkey Part Two and his his quest for a Luger. Oh he, yes. Oh he yeah. He is yeah. like with with no nothing to go on other than hey there are dead German soldiers out there outside the trench. I bet one of them has a Luger. <laughs> and he hops out of the trench and goes running and immediately comes under fire. And mm-hmm. he's zigging and zagging like he's a football player at like the NFL Combine. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, he finally dives down. And of course, the soldier doesn't have a, a Luger. And then he's like trapped and has to like make the run back <laughs> totally empty handed. <laughs> well, and like, it's funny because the guys are watching him. And the Germans eventually stop shooting at him. And the guys are like, well, they must think he's a medic or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, he gets back up and he zigzags and runs back to the trench. Yeah. Really freaking lucky because you're expecting him to, t- you know, take a shot in the leg. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, absolutely crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. So, you know, I, I think the other crazy thing to think about as we get toward the end of the episode is that this isn't the end for easy company this is day <laughs> one day two of their deployment to europe yeah. and they saw that much action within 24 hours and they get no rest no rest no. in the the general sense. i mean they get you know a nap or something like that but their their next stop is a little town called Coudeville, if I'm pronouncing it right, my French is Carentan. 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 Well, they're they're tasked with going after yet another German village or German village, German controlled French village, mm-hmm. French town. Uh, almost immediately, I think the thing to always to to kind of keep in the back of your mind, especially for this this episode and the next one, is that think about a movie like Saving Private Ryan, where you're seeing soldiers landing on the beach. This is happening as this is going on. Oh yeah, and and Easy Company is playing a critical role in that. So if if you think you know, think about those one hundred fives, the artillery pieces, those rounds are impacting on Utah Beach. Is what they mm-hmm. said. So in Saving Private Ryan, you see Omaha Beach, but Utah Beach, the other very bloody American beach, uh, in the the actual invasion, or the land invasion. That's where those rounds are impacting. And so those soldiers are gaining a foothold on the beach and they're pushing in ro- inland and they're relying on these paratroopers as a critical part of this invasion plan to, to soften up and take out some key tactical points. Mm-hmm. And so there's no rest for the weary. Yeah, I mean, the, these guys are behind enemy lines. They are disrupting enemy operations. They are hitting some of the critical infrastructure that they have back there. And yeah, all this other stuff is still going on essentially at the front, but these guys are well behind the front, uh, doing a lot of, uh, taking on a lot of essential actions. They are in enemy territory. So their, their ability to rest, uh, is severely diminished. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they, they might be able to take a village and kind of hang out there for a little bit. And it looks like they, they hooked up with a, a convoy of trucks and such that, that made their way in. But this is really still enemy controlled territory. It is not solidly uh, allied controlled at this point. No, no, very, very, very far from it. I think the the way to think about this at the, at the end of this episode is that they've, they've caught the Germans a little bit off balance that the Germans mm-hmm. in reality thought that the Americans were going to land elsewhere. Mm-hmm. 
they knew they were coming, uh, but they've caught them slightly off balance. But you're talking about you know a very powerful, well-trained force with a lot more combat experience than the Americans, uh, oh, yeah. to to some extent, the rest of the Allies have. And now, you know, word is spreading that Americans are on the ground, and so you know things are not going to get any easier as they go forward. And there's that, you know, the, the episode ends sort of with two poignant moments. Winters is agonizing a little bit over the death of Hall. I mean, you you see just how good a leader he is in a sense because he's. He, I think a lot of folks. You know, some folks maybe would would look at that and say, you know, you you took those artillery pieces out, you got that great piece of intel, and you only lost one guy, and another guy got shot in the ass. Like that's a good day, all things considered, in the invasion of Europe, right? But yeah, what he's focused on is, hey, I I lost this kid, right? He was under my command, and I I couldn't protect him there, and exactly. he's not going to dwell on it. But I, I think it's something that it's a portion of his being this this great weight of responsibility that's upon his shoulders that uh, is something that you see build and grow as the show and the war continues. And you see him, the final scene is he and Nixon kind of looking out over France and you see, you know, a little village and stuff on fire. And that's what they're walking into right into the lion's den. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, it is good to see, from a character perspective that, you know, this loss does weigh heavy on him. And, and this is his first combat loss. Um, you know, there will definitely be many others that we're going to see as the series goes on. But, uh, you know, that's it's that first one is, you know, I mean, the, the first time something big happens, it's like, hey, this, you know, your, your, your first kiss, your first girlfriend, something like that. The, these are, are big events in your life. And in this particular time and place for winters where there's so much happening so fast, that first loss of his is something that is going to, that's going to stick with him for quite a long time. So, so yeah, that, uh, so that is days of day of days. Uh, Please definitely join us for our next episode, which will be covering Karen Tan, uh, which is the third episode of band of brothers. We should be coming back to you hopefully in a couple of weeks to talk about that. Uh, So we certainly want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, we hope that you've been watching Band of Brothers along with us. Uh, Any kind of questions or comments or any other feedback you might have for us, uh, one way to get us is by email. And you can get that to us uh, by sending it to dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can also find us online. Twitter, you can find the general tag at random chatter tim where can folks find you on on twitter uh that's at qui-gon tim tim with two m's you can find me at thomas l the letter l harper h-a-r-p-e-r you can also find all of our shows at randomchatter.com very conveniently organized with all the links and uh directions to download that you need oh yeah all the stuff is up there uh, we also appreciate you spreading the word and helping to support us. So wherever it is that you download your, your podcast from, uh, iTunes, Google Play, places like that, please be sure to click on all the stars, leave us a review, write something in that, uh, first of all, we like to hear nice things. You know, if you have something nice to say, put it up there. <laughs> um, we also do appreciate, you know, nice things by way of email and such. 
if, if if you have something that might be not so nice, just send it to us privately in an email. Uh, I mean, it, it's not that we don't want that stuff. Uh, I mean, we we do want you to send it to us so we know about it. And we can we we take that stuff to heart. We can make some changes uh, as we can. But uh, if you put it out there publicly, it kind of sticks. So even if we improve and we 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 make a change people are always going to see that negative comment. So that's just kind of, you know, that kind of sucks. Um, but also to be sure to tell your friends about us, uh, anyone who is interested in Band of Brothers, anyone who is interested in World War II stuff, um, tell them about us, tell them about what it is that we're doing. Hopefully they'll be able to, uh, to, to jump in on this. And of course, you know, the previous episodes are there uh, so they can catch up with what we've been doing. They can catch up watching Band of Brothers. Which, uh, by the way, you can catch on, uh, on on HBO. If you subscribe to it, you can get it on uh, HBO Now, uh, who I believe is still doing 90 days free on the HBO Now app. Um, definitely, you can bang out these 10 episodes in, in less than 90 days. Um, and I, you can also get it from Amazon Prime. So that's a great place to, uh, to be able to watch Band of Brothers. Or, you know, if you want to own the discs... Uh, you can can go out and, and get the disc too. Uh, it's it's a nice set. So if you enjoy what it is that you're doing, uh, this is a labor of love for us. Not only this show that Tom and I are doing, but we have I we're up at like ten or twelve other shows now across the network, and we have a bunch of others that are like in various uh, uh, stages of development. Some that are going to be coming out truly within the next couple of weeks. So we have a lot of stuff going on out there with, with Random Chatter. If you like what you're hearing, uh, we definitely appreciate some financial support. You can uh, find information on that by going to randomchatter.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And that'll give you all the information on how you can throw us some extra cash. Uh, Patreon contributions start at $1 a month. A lot of folks, I know not everyone can afford that. Uh, you might be cash strapped, but a lot of folks can, <clears throat> excuse me, can definitely uh, afford that. And that certainly helps us. And you might think, well, gee, my dollar a month isn't going to be that big of a help. But it's a whole concept of crowdsourcing. We get a dollar a month from you and from someone else and from someone else and from someone else. And eventually in a year, we've got a good amount of money. And this money helps us to cover things like web hosting fees and data storage fees and other expenses that we have associated with the with the network itself uh, and we also give back to you so for every contribution that you make to us you get something out of it as well just that dollar a month will get you full access to our discord community um, if you want to find out more about discord you can go to randomchatter.com discord and in that discord community we have a main lobby which you can access for free but if you want to access the other rooms in there we have topical rooms talking about TV shows and movies and Star Wars and Walking Dead and pets and food and uh, all sorts of different things. That just takes that dollar a month through Patreon. That's all. And you get full access to that. Um, we have other uh, benefits that are available at the $5 level, the $10 level, $15 level, where you'll get early access to things. Uh, you'll get exclusive access to things that no one else gets. And so there's a lot of good stuff out there. So again, randomchatter.com slash Patreon uh, if you want to show us some love. And uh, Discord, randomchatter.com slash Discord. Tom, your favorite part. 
Is there a random chatter room for legal disclaimers that you can discuss all the joys <laughs> of those things? Uh, I mean, I could set it up, but I don't think people really want to discuss that, Tom. That's I'll be not just a real. I'll be like thing. a crazy person talking to myself, like, "Gee, did you hear my last disclaimer?" And speaking of disclaimers, <laughs> my favorite part of every episode, I will say, "Dispatches from the Front" is not sadly endorsed by Home Op- Home Box Office Incorporated. That's HBO to you lay people. I know. It's uh, it's like when I get called Thomas and not Tom. And very <laughs> Anyhow, well, it may also be obvious, but it dispatches from the front is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the Band of Brothers series are registered trademarks and copyrights of HBO Incorporated or their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not sadly affiliated with HBO. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have a different day job, I suppose. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. And if you want to chat about that disclaimer with me on Random Chatter, I, I welcome it. We can set up a whole little mini community in there. I don't think you're going to get a lot of takers for no, that. No, I don't think so. I mean, that's nice of you to, to <laughs> extend that invitation, but... Yeah, a guy can wish, can he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, please be sure to uh, queue up the next episode of Band of Brothers, Karen Tan, and join us in a couple weeks for our review of that. Thanks again for listening. Thanks.